This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Thank you once again for joining us. Yeah, it's a little surreal actually. I just loaded up CNBC and I see Binance launching an NFT marketplace and I just go, what? Yeah, so 2021, Binance's new NFT marketplace is on the homepage of CNBC. One below the headline. Amazing. So... Welcome once again. Copper is riding at $4.33, not the John Cage piece. So very interesting moves in the metals. Again, everything just seems to be lifting higher again after a few weeks of consolidation. Turning to our events, we have the Northern Miner Global Mining Symposium is coming up on May 19th and 20th. You can register at events.northernminer.com. We are putting on actually quite a few little events and big events. And so the Global Mining Symposium is going to have David Garofalo, who is at Gold Royalty now. And he used to be president and CEO of HUD Bay. And uh, that's sort of where he kind of made his name as far as I understand. And so he is at Gold Royalty Corporation. And also there's Jake Klein, who is executive chairman of Evolution Mining, and maybe the one I'm most excited about is Ken Hoffman, senior expert at McKinsey & Company. For those who don't know, I mean, as far as I understand, I am not an expert in consultants, but I mean, McKinsey is kind of the gold standard. It used to be. I assume it still is the gold standard in consulting. So whenever you get someone from McKinsey, a senior expert, Ken Hoffman, that should be very interesting. Those guys are almost paid to be interesting. Uh, we also have Dean Gehring, Executive Vice President, CTO of Newmont. Yeah, so the Chief Technology Officer of a mining company. Again, it must be 2021. Anthony Downs, Head of Digital Transformation at Valet. This looks like it's going to be a great show. Uh, registration, I believe, is still free for these things. So just go to events.northernminer.com. And there are actually quite a few other presenters. So... They keep adding to this every week, and so it's very exciting. And also, you can register. Step Gold is going to be doing an investor presentation with the Northern Miner, and it's going to be hosted by Anthony Vaccaro, and that is on May 12th at 11 a.m. Also, you can find that on investors.northernminer.com. So for all those companies that are looking for ways to uh, get their message out, there is investors.northernminer.com, which looks like a great way to get your message out. Mark Selby from Canada Nickel just did a presentation last week, and you can also see that at investors.northernminer.com. So lots going on here at the Northern Miner as per usual. This episode, we have a very interesting guest. We have Jack Lundeen, who is president, CEO, and director of Bluestone Resources which 
has the Cerro Blanco Gold Project in Guatemala. And as you probably recognize the name for anybody that's current in mining, yeah, the Lundin family. So this is the third generation. And uh, Jack, he's a fairly young guy, but I mean, he's probably been trained since birth to do this kind of job. So it was a very interesting interview. We're going to get the latest really on mining in Latin America and what it's like. He was at uh, Fruta del Norte before uh, moving on to Bluestone Resources, and he became chairman. And actually, and then he just became president in April. So a bit of a coming out party for Jack Lundin. Again, sounds like they're doing interesting things. They they did a pretty good job, you have to say, Lundin Gold with Fruta del Norte in Ecuador, which was first owned by Kinross and sold a few years ago to Lundin Gold. And it had hit uh, several roadblocks with Kinross and Lundin Gold Looks like they've been able to rescue that project and actually make it a success story. So so the latest from Latin America with Jack Lundin coming up and some exciting commodity prices. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts, as well as SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we're going to start with Uranium. Anthony Malowski, who is Director of International Consolidated Uranium, which is on the TSX Venture, he wrote a very interesting piece is uranium sentiment improving? After years of neglect, uranium stocks have been enjoying time in the sun. What's interesting is that today's spot price of $30 per pound, while considerably higher than its multi-year low in 2016 of $18 per pound, is still below the level needed for most producers to make a profit and well below that needed to incentivize new mine construction. There's no question that positive sentiment has been driving stocks. The question is, why is it happening now? Now, we had a guest, Rowan Roddy, a few episodes ago, and I think actually Rowan nailed the, this question, and he said it was a shift to value. And just as we sort of saw with the energy stocks, uh, we saw with uranium, and it was kind of around the same time. It was a little bit delayed in uranium. It was about like a few weeks later, as far as I sort of gauge it, because it was about December 1st when uranium stocks started moving up. So that was his take. I think it was a pretty good take, but let's see what Anthony Malowski has to say. So, I mean, I am going through parts of the article here. So to do him justice, go to the website and look for this article. Continuing on, according to the UXC... One of the foremost uranium research and analysis groups, 70% of uranium is produced at below $30 per pound, the current approximate spot price, leaving 30% above it. Once we are past 2025, UXC has indicated that declining inventories and reserve depletion will necessitate the use of more costly production, something that producers have made clear is off the table until prices rise. This is all highly encouraging for the price, but it does not fully explain the scale of the current sentiment uptick. For the fuller picture, let us look at uranium in the broader context of decarbonization and the greening of the global economy. The World Nuclear Association states that there are currently just over 440 operable reactors worldwide, 
It's quite a few. 440 nuclear reactors. Thank you, Anthony Malowski, for giving us a number here. This is great. So approximately 440 operable reactors worldwide. According to the International Energy Association, nuclear energy currently provides over 10% of the world's electricity requirements, is the largest source of low-carbon electricity in advanced economies, and according to their figures, prevents the emission of 2.1 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent every year. Now, my only question with this environmental thesis is something that my dad brought up, who I think basically supports, for the most part, nuclear energy, who's a physicist, and also my girlfriend, who is my girlfriend. And it's what about the nuclear waste? Somehow with this whole environmental thesis, like that's the question I'm going to ask the next time I have a guest that is singing the virtues of of nuclear power as an environmental solution, because there is still the issue of nuclear waste, unless that's somehow been resolved in a way that I just haven't heard about, but that still is not a minor thing. So continuing on, the world's largest economies, including the United States and China, are major users of nuclear energy, along with Russia, the United Kingdom, France, Canada, South Korea, India, and Belgium. Even the United Arab Emirates has a nuclear power station in operation. Nuclear is one of the cleanest forms of energy available, period. When it comes to carbon emissions, it equals and, in some cases, outperforms renewable energy sources. It is also a great deal more reliable. As several states in the U.S. discovered in the past year, in the form of massive extended power outages affecting hundreds of thousands of people, adverse weather can prevent the proper operation of renewable energy plants. And the fact is, the vast majority of power grids are designed to use steady baseload energy from fossil fuel and nuclear power stations, not those with output that can change at any given moment like wind and solar. The nuclear industry has been touting the importance of baseload energy for years, but I think only now, with the evidence staring them in the face, are more people waking up to the fact that renewable energy generation and modern power grids do not mix well with large-scale renewable energy deployments. So, good points, but again, this nuclear waste is often... Because I have sung the virtues of nuclear power, but that's the response I've gotten. And you know what? I don't have a good answer on the nuclear waste side. So we're going to have to ask someone that knows a heck of a lot more than I do on this. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a minimum of 80% of the world's electricity needs to be low carbon by 2050 if we are to prevent global temperature increases beyond 2 degrees Celsius. The IEA is even more aggressive. It states that the world needs 85% of electricity to come from clean sources by 2040. 85% of electricity by 2040 from clean energy. They call for, quote, massive investments in efficiency and renewables and an 80% increase in global nuclear power production by 2040. And so it seems like Anthony Malowski is really attributing a lot of it to the a lot of the moving stocks to this bigger move in society towards renewable energy. We might call it the green energy plan. Finally here, the uranium spot market is thin and has the potential to change dramatically over comparatively short periods of time. As Tim Gitzel says, it's opaque. 
As a result, you cannot rely on recent price rises to foretell the future of the commodity. However, with compelling supply and demand figures combined with increasing government support and funding, it becomes easier to understand the change in sentiment for this long-neglected energy metal and to consider that it may be here to stay. So interesting. I mean, he may be right. Maybe it's not just a shift to value. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's like sort of seen as, okay, this is going to be a solution. We're going to need nuclear energy meeting kind of like the stock market technicians who are saying, all right, growth is played out. Let's shift to value. So interesting piece. And a nice little picture of a happy uranium guy. Go to the website to check that out. And also on a governmental level, Greenland Minerals seeks talks with new government over fate of rare earths project. We've been covering this story. There is a project which is owned by Greenland Minerals, the Kavanyafeld Rare Earth Project. And some of the people running were not too thrilled with having a rare earth project in their backyard. So let's take a look at this. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi, mining.com. Australia's Greenland Minerals said today it is seeking to engage in talks with Greenland's authorities over its Kavanyafeld rare earth project as the newly formed government opposes the development. The uranium in rare earth's rich Arctic island has gained notoriety in the past two years following former U.S. President Donald Trump's offer to buy it. The move sought to partly help address Chinese dominance of the rare earths market, as the nation accounts for almost 80% of the global mine supply of the elements used in everything from high-tech electronics to military equipment. Greenland's new coalition government, which consists of the Inuit, Atakatikit, and Nalarak parties, has publicly stated its intentions to block Kvanyafeld development due to the presence of uranium as a byproduct. Earlier this month, Greenland Minerals said uranium was of no great importance to its project, seeking to appease concerns. The miner had previously said that revenues generated by the uranium and other byproducts of the operation would help offset rare earth production costs. The company's shares have lost 50% of their value since April 6th, when the IA party won the parliamentary election with more than a third of the votes. The IA dethroned the ruling Simut party, which had led every government except one since 1979. Yeah, not really a place you'd think of as having jurisdictional risk, Greenland. But, you know, I guess that can happen anywhere, uh, especially if you're mining for uranium. I mean, and rare earths, which is apparently quite a dirty process. So it's easy to be ideological about these things until it's happening in your backyard. And then maybe you feel a little different about it. Continuing on, Fortuna Silver is going to buy Roxgold for $884 million, which is interesting because Roxgold is a gold company and Fortuna Silver is, that's like my bellwether for silver stocks. I, I always, to me, it's, a, it's, a, it's one I've been following for literally 10 years. I remember when James Dines recommended it $2 and uh, actually he probably recommended it a lot cheaper than that. I bought it at $2. I don't know what's at now, probably 10 which is okay 10 years later. I mean, it's done a lot of up and downs in between. Anyways, turning to the story. So Fortuna Silver Mines is buying Rocks Gold in an all-share deal valued at a billion dollars or $884 million US. As strong gold prices spurs a wave of mergers and acquisitions in the sector, 
Fortuna, which has operations in Peru, Mexico, and Argentina, said the combined company would produce about 450,000 gold equivalent ounces a year at all-in sustaining costs of $950 per ounce gold equivalent. Sounds like a pretty big operation. The combined company. Okay, so altogether, they would be producing about 450,000 gold ounces a year. So, you know, 10% of Barrick is a, a little under 10% of Barrick. Not terrible. I mean, that's Barrick. After the merger, existing Fortuna and Roxgold shareholders will own about 64% for Fortuna and 35% for Roxgold. So, in other words, Fortuna will own 64% of the new combined entity and Roxgold shareholders will own 35%. Fortuna CEO and co-founder Jorge A. Ganoza said the acquisition will provide his company access to a complete business platform that brings low-cost gold production and a permitted feasibility stage project in West Africa, along with a robust exploration pipeline and seasoned executive team. And we have a quote from the conference call. We have followed the success of the Rock School team for a number of years from their early start at Yaramoko back in 2015. Since then, John and his team have successfully continued to expand their business in West Africa. And today, by combining our companies, Fortuna is gaining access to a platform for continued growth in one of the most prolific gold regions in the world. And he also said a little bit further down the article that the transaction, quote, creates a premier global intermediate precious metals producer with exciting near and medium term growth. This is not just a combination of quality assets, but equally importantly, We are bringing together two teams of high performers in their respective jurisdictions, and this is one of the things I'm personally most excited about. And it sounds like Rockschooled CEO John Dorward is also very happy. Quote, we feel very confident that this is the next logical step for Rockschooled. While we have had a great deal of success in Burkina Faso and Cote d'Ivoire over recent years, we feel that the best future for our stakeholders is to combine with a company of the caliber of Fortuna. The future belongs to liquid, well-diversified, and capitalized companies, and the combined company will have a wealth of compelling growth opportunities to pursue. Fortuna is comprised of genuine operators and mine builders, and we look forward to a very bright future. So you can read all the details on that on northernminer.com. You know, you get the impression that these guys have known each other for a while, and that maybe they had been sort of thinking about this for a while. It is a compelling company. I mean, when you put all these assets together, it does take both companies to a new level. And, you know, 884 million US, I mean, it's not like, uh, it doesn't seem like a huge amount of money, interestingly. Especially, like, we didn't get into details on how much gold is being produced by Rocks Gold. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like what's a billion dollars for a, you know, well known gold miner. But who knows? Okay. And finally, Foreign Mining wants to develop the world's first carbon-neutral copper project, and this is in Saskatchewan. It's by Valentina Ruiz Leotode, Mining.com. Foreign Mining's McKelva Bay deposit in Saskatchewan, Canada, (laughs) may become the world's first carbon-neutral copper development project. Yes, Saskatchewan is in Canada. I'm from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. So I can confirm That's Saskatoon's in Canada. Saskatchewan is in Canada. Sorry. Sorry, Valentina. Giving you a hard time there. The Vancouver-based company announced this week that it has partnered with carbon measurement firm Carbon Zero and Sustainable Advisory Synergy Enterprises to accurately record its emissions 
and purchase verified offsets for the carbon emitted from all exploration activities over the past 10 years at the deposit. And we have a quote from Foreign Mining. The move underscores Foreign's commitment to building the world's first fully carbon-neutral copper mine and is part of its broader mission to create a blueprint for responsible mining that causes the least possible harm from day one through the innovative use of technology, renewable energy, and fleets of electric vehicles and equipment. By offsetting the carbon emitted in the exploration phase, Foreign aims to ensure that it accounts for the entire impact of the project from development through to operations to eventual closure. It's very interesting. I mean, a copper deposit in Saskatchewan, it's not something like having grown up there, we think of Potash Corp, Cameco, maybe some diamonds in the north. We had De Beers, I think, was there. Uh, you don't really think of Saskatchewan and copper. Uh, so pretty interesting to follow these guys. It's foreign mining. Finally, very quickly, we have the world's top 10 biggest gold mines ranked, and that is by mining.com and mining intelligence. Check that out. The biggest producer in the world is Polyus's Olympiada property in Russia. And then we have Barrett Gold's Pueblo Viejo in the Dominican Republic, Freeport McMoran's Grassberg in Indonesia, Newcrest Mining's Cadia Valley in Australia, Barrett Gold's Kibali in Congo, and Barrick's Cortez is number six in the U.S., Newcrest Mining's Lahir project in Papua New Guinea, Barrick Gold's Lulu Guncoto project in Mali. You don't hear about that very often, do you? It's number eight. And finally, Newmont's Boddington in Australia and Kirkland Lake Gold's Fosterville in Australia. So those are the top 10 biggest gold mines by output. Fascinating stuff. Okay, so those are your news stories. Now let's turn to metal prices. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on April 27th, gold is trading at $1,781.04 per ounce. That is $7 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $26.25 per ounce. That is 31 cents higher. Then last week, platinum is trading at $1,244.90 per ounce. That is $51 higher than last week's quote. Palladium is trading at $2,957.76 per ounce. That is $195 higher than last week. So palladium rocket launches. Where this ends... No one knows. I mean, don't forget about rhodium, which went to like $10,000 per ounce. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is 10 cents higher at $4.33 per pound. Aluminum is 3 cents higher at $1.08 per pound. Lead is 3 cents higher at 92 cents per pound. Nickel is 11 cents lower at $7.33 per pound. Tin is at $12.57 per pound. 
That is 25 cents lower than last week. And cobalt is a penny lower at $22.59 per pound. And finally, zinc is two cents lower at $1.27 per pound. Palladium stealing the show without question. Precious metals continue to show some strength, kind of wind in their sail. Industrial metals, I mean, copper is at very elevated levels, probably the highest levels since we started recording these numbers a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. But everything else basically consolidating, maybe slightly lower in the industrial metals. Copper and palladium steal the show. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Jack Lundeen, who is CEO, President, and Director of Bluestone Resources. Prior to joining Bluestone Resources, Mr. Jack Lundeen was involved in the successful development of Lundeen Gold's Fruta del Norte gold mine in southern Ecuador, where he served as project superintendent. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. So joining me on the podcast today, I'm very pleased to welcome Jack Lundeen, who is President, CEO, and Director of Bluestone Resources. Jack, welcome to the program. Hi, Adrian. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to have you, and you have a very famous last name in the industry. I have to confess, I don't know a ton about the Lundeens, but I mean, it's a name you see over and over so how does that work? How do you fit into this whole thing? Are you, are you the son? Tell me a little bit about just how you got into mining. It sounds like a family affair. Sure. So I'm the third generation of uh, the, the family that's been in the mining and natural resource sector. So my grandfather started out in the oil business uh, over 40 years ago. And my father, Lucas, and my uncle, Ian, both got into the business at a young age and now uh, the third generation is here. Me, my three brothers, and a few of my cousins were all in the business, so working on the oil and gas side, the uh, mining, precious metals, base metals, and renewable energy side of the business. So, um, yeah, we've been in the game for for a long time, practically my whole life, and you know, I think we can attribute a lot of the success to really spending our most of our time uh, as a family kind of discussing the industry and current affairs and um, you know how the global economy impacts the commodity industry so it's a very fascinating business and really fortunate to be you know so heavily involved with this industry very interesting and is that the Lundin group then is that sort of the umbrella company that and they have a whole bunch of assets including say bluestone resources would that be a fair characterization yes yeah, so the Lundin group is is not a company itself but we do classify 14 companies publicly traded companies as Lundin group companies and really what that means is either the family is a majority shareholder in the publicly traded company or we have a certain amount of a management team involved with the company that uh, you know works to drive the projects within the given company forward um, looks at optimizing operations and really um, letting each of those 14 companies operate uh, individually on their own so that they have the availability to resources but also the the ability to keep that entrepreneurial spirit so 
Um, rather than having one large company, we operate in many different commodities and therefore we try to remain as nimble as possible by splitting the companies based on the region or the metal or the uh, stage of the given project. Very interesting. And so have you always been in the mining sector, so to speak, or were you once in oil and gas? Tell us tell us how you got to where you are. You just recently became president and you before you were CEO and director at Bluestone Resources. Tell us how you got here then. Have you always been in mining? Sure. So I, I actually started out of college in the uh, oil and gas side of the business. I was working for Lundin Petroleum, which is now called Lundin Energy in Norway, where we have offshore oil and gas exploration and production in the North Sea. Um, and then I went back and got a mining engineering degree after two years working uh, on the oil side. And from there, when I was doing my uh, engineering degree, we were looking at a project in southern Ecuador called Fruta del Norte. And when we picked up that project, it was right around the time I was finishing my engineering degree. So I went in and uh, was fortunate to be involved in the advanced study phase of Fruta del Norte, which is a very high grade gold project that we brought from study phase into operations. Uh, so I was there for about four years. And then uh, upon completion of, of the construction phase, we shifted our attention to looking at Bluestone, which has our flagship asset here in southern Guatemala, and are really looking to replicate the success that we had at Fruta del Norte by bringing a undeveloped high-grade gold project through study, through construction, and into operations. So in January 2020, I joined as a CEO, and today I am yeah, leading the company towards that, uh, that goal of getting through the permitting phase, into the construction phase, and into operations. Okay, very good. And yeah, the Fruta del Norte project, I mean, it got a lot of attention for years and years. I think it was was it Kinross that owned it before? And they had all sorts of problems with the government. And so you guys came in, got fresh people. And it sounds like it's been going fairly well. What would you attribute that to? Just new people needed a fresh start? I think that's a lot to do with it. So we were able to acquire Fruta del Norte from Kinross back in 2015. And at the time, we were, you know, really keen and, and really looking for uh, high-grade, robust gold projects all around the world. And, and Fruta del Norte is that one, as you mentioned, that everybody has heard about, but nobody really believed there was a potential of bringing it forward. And we came in with, uh, you know, a fresh perspective and said, you know, the, the project is there. The, the local um, stakeholders seem to be uh, supportive if it means that there's long-lasting jobs and benefits that will be, you know, realized by the communities. So we discussed this uh, at the presidential level and met with the president and his ministers and said, listen, we, we believe we can bring this project forward in a sustainable and responsible manner, but we have to have uh, the right fiscal agreement in place and stability in place in order to make those big commitments of upfront initial capital before we start realizing and, and, and making any money. So with that, we, we took our shell company, which at the time was called Fortress Minerals, and put the Lundin name behind it. So changed Fortress Minerals to Lundin Gold and went in and, and kind of 
took the approach of okay let's let's study the deposit let's build out our team and let's work with the local communities and the national authorities to bring this forward together rather than just us coming in and trying to do it our own way and then you know get into production and and, and move on uh, you have to take a long-term approach build a partnership with the uh, host country and and that's exactly what we did and and right now we're um, you know, in operations and looking at expanding the operation uh, and, and upsizing the, the project. Um, so it came with challenges, of course, but at the end, um, it was it was a good investment that we made and we're we're seeing that now. Yeah, it really does seem like it's part of the new paradigm uh, that you really have to be, you know, partners. And people always say that said that in the past with the community. But I think it's uh you know, you see with Mark Bristow and Barrick, where it's like he's giving very generous deals, one could argue, but it's probably he has to, I, I imagine, uh, with his partner countries. And there seems to be yeah, a new paradigm is, is it's more than just talk now, this idea of partnering with the community. And, and speaking of that, so let's turn now to is it Cerro Blanco? How, how would you pronounce this? Yes, Cerro Blanco, the Cerro Blanco Gold Project in, in southern Guatemala. Right. So Cerro Blanco. So you compare it with Fruta del Norte. Now, is this like an exaggeration? Is this an overstatement or is this like uh, like to tell us about what is the comparison? Sure. So there are comparisons and there are a lot of differences. What what is comparable by you know Fruta del Norte and, and Cerro Blanco is that they are both high grade deposits and they have both been in existence for a number of years prior to going forward through construction and into operation. So there's, you know, legacy um, commitments that were made by previous companies in the past, and there is work to do with building a sense of trust with the communities. But ultimately, the similarity is that these projects are ones that are very robust, that are very high grade in nature, and that really do deserve to be in operations because the benefits that will be realized by not just the mining company like Bluestone uh, or Lundin Gold, but by if you do it the right way and set up the, you know, set up and build the capacity um, for the local stakeholders, then there's benefits to be had by everyone. And so those are the similarities. But of course, no gold project or any mineral resource project in the world, even if it's in the same country or same province is the same. Geology mm. is always going to have differences. The, the demographic of the community, it doesn't matter. There are always going to be a lot of differences that you have to understand. Trying to take one model from another uh, project and just cookie cutter implement into the next project will, will not succeed. You have to conceptualize or contextualize, sorry, to make sure that you're taking the right approach with the given project. And for this one, Cerro Blanco, we've got the team in place and we understand, you know, the the opportunities and the challenges. And we're going to work with both of those to to make this project a success. And tell me about the transition. I mean, so you were at Fruta del Norte, uh, London Gold, and then you moved here. Is this your first uh, leadership role at a company? I mean, you just graduated school a few years ago. This must be your first CEO and president gig. Yeah, so I, I, I did my first undergrad, uh, completed that in 2012, and then I was working in the oil and gas side. And then I did my master's in engineering, uh, and then I came into Fruta del Norte and was working as a mining engineer, 
worked my way up to project superintendent. And then from there, I jumped to CEO of Bluestone. So I definitely jumped into a leadership role very rapidly. However, I've been training my whole life to become a leader of a company. And so joining as CEO of Bluestone Resources, it, it was a big step, but it did feel natural for me. So while there are some some growing pains, of course, and uh, a lot of information and a lot of uh, a lot of things to consider when when leading a company that's looking at growing and, and does have a good um, trajectory to to grow into a, a bigger entity. Um, there's a lot to take on, and I, I really do rely on the people that I've brought into this company and the board of directors and my peers in the Lundin Group, and of course my family. Um, so I do have a good support system and i think that uh, i've got the tools and experience needed to to drive this project forward i i would think i mean being raised in the family that you were uh would be a huge amount of preparation that's right yeah exactly good okay so now tell us about the project this is a gold project uh, is it entirely gold is it other stuff what have you found so far so it's quite a unique position that we're in because Cerro Blanco was always contemplated as a underground gold development. It's a, it's a high grade gold um, and silver project. And really last year with the team that we brought in and, and given the, the impact of COVID and, and the, you know, the, the pause that we had to take in terms of advancing the project forward at a pace that we wanted to, we really had to kind of take an approach of, continuing our drilling and focusing on building out the team and advancing with engineering. But that gave us the opportunity to realize that this project shouldn't be considered as an underground. It's actually uh, what we're <clears throat> contemplating as an, as an open pit development now. So we made a strategic pivot uh, and announced that on February 28th, that we're no longer going with an underground development concept, but we're moving to an open pit. And what that mm -hmm. does is it, it more than doubles the resource uh, and more than doubles the production of gold, triples the production of silver, and essentially triples the value of the project. So now it's a bigger scale project um, and you know a lot more benefits to be had, but it means that we're now redoing a feasibility study with this new strategy. Uh, and then, you know, so production is now what was contemplated as uh, reaching production in the end of 22 or early 23. We're now targeting the end of 24 for first gold. So bigger project pushed out, pushed out the development and production timeline. But when we get into production, it's going to be a much more robust production profile. So very exciting, but uh, not common that you'll see a project come out with a press release saying that we've pivoted to a brand new development concept. How did that idea come? Was it like uh, an epiphany of sorts or was it just like kind of an obvious progression that, OK, of course we should do this? Well, we, we always knew that the, the mineralization of the deposit went to surface and it was a near surface high grade gold deposit. However, the project was permitted by Gold Corp in 2007 for an underground development scenario. And then when Bluestone acquired in 2017 Cerro Blanco, the project had already advanced um, with their significant underground development and kind of momentum leading towards an underground concept. However, we worked on remapping the geology um, and restudying kind of the, the deposit itself. We did a lot more drilling and brought in kind of the team to really look at this and go, 
while the underground is a robust high-grade project indeed, we're going to be leaving behind a significant amount of gold and silver in the ground if we were to pursue an underground development. And as a mining professional, our duty is to look at how we can actually maximize the mineral extraction from a given resource. And in going with the underground, we, would, we wouldn't be doing that. So it obviously wasn't a decision that came overnight, but we had to understand from a technical and economic standpoint that this was the right thing to do. And from that standpoint, it's a no-brainer. And then the next thing is to understand from Guatemala if there's an appetite for a project of this scale in the country. And so I've met with the president, I've met with the ministries here, and uh, they are supportive of this project. And the local stakeholders as well are on side for us to move this forward. Of course, there's some there's some issues that we have to work through and resolve and mitigate some risks, but uh, we know that we can do that. And so that's why we're here today looking at this uh, new strategy. And that's exactly where I wanted to go was working with this community in Guatemala now, and even just say like the ESG thing. So, so what are you guys doing? Like, I, I know you have some geothermal projects. Does that factor into your whole, you know, what we might call an ESG strategy, for lack of better words? Tell me about just working with the local communities and, and if it fits in with this geothermal project. Sure. So maybe just touching on the geothermal potential first. It is a hot springs environment where the Cerro Blanco uh, mine is located. And in the adjacent license, we do have a permit to generate up to 50 megawatts of renewable energy through our Mita geothermal project. So that absolutely is a unique aspect for our company and something that we are looking at driving forward in parallel. Um, we still have some investigations and some studies to do to confirm how much uh, geothermal energy we could actually produce. And that study is ongoing. Um, and so I think that's a unique aspect given that the world, of course, is shifting to much more uh, greener focus and much, much more of a focus on limiting the impact of, um, you know, industrial projects and just human actions on the, the world today. So we're focused on kind of joining and, and leading that trend. And the Meet to Geothermal project is something that can help us offset any carbon emissions that we would have in the uh, production of the of the gold from Cerro Blanco, and also to offset some power requirements from the grid. Um, we could look at generating power and selling into the grid or generating power and actually tying into the Cerro Blanco project, which would be something very interesting and unique for us. However, we are close to infrastructure. So we are able to tie into the national grid to generate power for our operation. So we do have a lot of optionality and we want to make sure we, we capitalize on the opportunity here. In terms of working with the uh, local stakeholders, of course, that is a, the primary focus for us to make sure that we are um, developing and, and um, building a strong reputation with the local community. And we do that through our partnership with the Lundin Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization we established in 2006 that essentially comes in and helps our mining companies develop that, that strong engagement with local communities by helping to build local capacity, by helping to establish uh, local supplier entities um, so that they're certified and uh, you know, registered in order to legally 
support the mining operation. So we have the Lending Foundation is a unique tool in the Lending Group to really ensure that we are um, working in, in the most appropriate manner with, with the local community members. And as far as the geothermal project is concerned, is, is that ready to go? Or is that sort of like a plan that in three or four years, we hope there's going to be energy coming from this? What is the state of that project? No, I think, you know, you can develop it relatively quickly. I mean, as soon as you understand what the reservoir could produce in terms of power from from the uh, geothermal uh, horizons underground, then from there you look at building out um, certain modules based on size to see how much energy you can produce. So it's uh, it's not as complicated as building a mine, um, but it definitely does require upfront capital. And therefore, we would look at um, you know how you know we sequence the development of the mine uh, as compared to sequencing the development of the geothermal. So it's 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 a focus for us for sure, and it's not four or five years out in time it's it's much sooner than that but uh the timing is part of the strategy strategizing that we're doing right now sure very good okay so in closing what haven't we discussed that you kind of want us to know about it what, what are we missing here well i just think that you know right now the the gold market is in an interesting period because in 2020 it it basically shot through the roof above $2000 an ounce and then there was a little bit of a sell off and um i think a lot of money moved from precious metals into base metals and you can see the copper prices climbing um at a historic pace right now and i think gold equities have come off a bit and as we were making this pivot gold price went to an eight month low so i think it was hard to get the attraction that we were expecting by you know essentially tripling the value of this project but i think as soon as the investors can see what me and my peers see with cerro blanco we're going to see a, a really um a really big upside potential here for the share price and we have a clear path and a clear understanding of what it takes to bring this project to the next phase. And so we'll do just that with the team that we have here. Um, but other than that, I think we've, we've touched on mostly everything. It's much appreciated for you to allow me to come here and, and kind of give an update on that. Well, it's our pleasure. And final question, are, are you a Bitcoin fan? <laughs> um, cryptocurrency is not something that I invest in. I do follow it. Obviously, it's um, something that has had an impact on the gold price. And, you know, there's been a lot of people that have made a lot of money in that industry. Um, but, you know, I to say if I'm a fan or not, I, I think that it's something industry, it's something that's gained a lot of traction that we need to um, continue to monitor and see how that will uh, change the banking system going forward. But I don't think that it's a threat to the gold price. I think that gold will continue to be um, a safe haven asset as it has been for hundreds of years. But this is definitely a new asset class that's that's very interesting in the world of today. You know, I've been thinking about this and I, I think, interestingly, the virtue of gold is the fact that it's analog and that it's actually not digital. And I think that's becoming its big virtue now. Anyways, thank you very much, Jack Lundin, President, CEO, and Director of Bluestone Resources. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, and we wish you well on your project. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
sneak in the Bitcoin question, didn't I? Thank you once again for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you listening each and every week. If you want to help out the show, just leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Send it to your friends. Lots of exciting stuff coming up. So until next week, take care.